right. Welcome back once again, everybody. I'm Don Seifert. It's the Dr. Treefruit and Don podcast. This is our fifth season. Uh, it is February 6th. I'm here with Dr. Carrie Peter, Dr. Treefruit. Say hi, Carrie. Hi. And for the first time, uh, new to Penn State in general, uh, we have Dr. Sean Kumar. Uh, say hi. Uh, hello, everyone. So uh, I'll let Dr. Kumar uh, go first and give a little bit of information about his background, uh, what his research focus is, um, kind of what his plans are, uh, hopefully as he builds a, a long, fruitful career here at Penn State. So, uh, Thank you, Don and Kerry, for inviting me here. I'm excited to be here. I've listened to your podcast from the other side, and so it's nice to uh, talk to your listeners and listeners in Pennsylvania. Just want to take some time to introduce myself. Uh, so I come here to Penn State. I started in Jan 1st. And before that, I completed my PhD at Cornell University, working on uh, mainly cider apples, but looking at thinning, looking at pruning, looking at uh, uh, tannin production, and also looking at uh, uh, you know how environmental factors affect the tannin production in cider apples. Uh, crop load management in cider apples. And those are some of the topics that I covered during my PhD. I did a little bit of genetics work as well, trying to understand, you know, the genes responsible for tannin production in cider apples as well. Uh, so prior to that, I did uh, quite a bit of post-harvest work on enhancing shelf life uh, and reducing mealiness in peaches in the Niagara region in, uh, in Canada. Uh, so uh, about Ontario, Southern Ontario produces about 80% of Canada's peaches and nectarines, which is still very low compared to U.S. standards. But uh, so that was a beautiful region where I did some of my work on enhancing shelf life of uh, peaches and nectarines using uh, organic compound called hexanal. And then prior to that, I spent a little bit of time in Nova Scotia. I was there uh, during my undergrad studies and worked a little bit on herbicides, to con control fescue grass in wild blueberry, the low bush blueberry that is predominantly grown there in Quebec, Nova Scotia, and Maine. And before that, I did my undergraduate studies at uh, Tamil Nadu Agriculture University, so which is part of southern India. I am originally from there, and we grow a lot of fruit, tropical place, so there's a lot of mangoes, uh, banana, grapes. An interesting fact I'd like to always say is in my region, we can grow five seasons of grapes in two years. So every five months, you know, we can get, uh, we get a new crop. But uh, yeah, so that's kind of my journey and how I came to be here at Penn State. I'm happy to be here and to work on some of the topics that are relevant to growers here in Pennsylvania. And that would be, uh, you know, crop load management again of apples. It's such an important task, especially with the heavy crop loads that we got last year. There's a lot of work to be done. And also uh, I'll be working a little bit on uh, uh, plant growth regulators, as well as pre-harvest management for post-harvest shelf life. So these are some of the topics. And of course, I'll also be involved in the NC140 rootstock evaluations to try to understand, you know, which rootstocks work best for which climate, with soils, etc., and all of that uh, fun stuff. Happy to be here. Cool. Yeah, we're we're super super excited uh, to have you be here, and um, you know, 
your predecessor, uh, Dr. Crassweller, was a was a pretty stalwart guest uh, on the podcast. He he tried to join us pretty often, um, which was always really great of him. It was always good to have, you know, his his wealth of experience. And uh, yeah, well, I super hope that you will kind of fill in in that role and and join us. You know, maybe not every week. Uh, you know, new faculty members. You got a lot of stuff to do. Um, but hopefully, hopefully pretty often. So, um, I know you maybe have a couple things that people, you know, horticulturally that they should be thinking about since we are in, uh, early February and we're kind of winners maybe coming to an end. We'll see. Uh, yeah, uh, definitely. So when we think about the winter, I just wanted to talk a little bit about chilling hours and, uh, you know, where we're currently at in the season. And so, and dormancy. And so technically for apples, different varieties differ, but somewhere from 500 to 1000 chill hours for different varieties. Uh, so Gala and Fuji, for example, they require 400, 500 chill hours. Whereas at the other end, you have the uh, reds and the golds, which require 900,000 chill hours. And most of these chill hours in our climate is, are reached by the end of December. Uh, if it's if it's too bad in one if it's too warm in one year maybe early January but you know they've reached their chill hours by then uh, and after that they're in a phase where provided the right climate they are ready to bloom and which is why in February you know we always have to have our fingers crossed about uh, you know the weather not being too warm like it happened in 2012 where we had a, a huge loss because of very warm weather in February. So hopefully that doesn't happen and we'll keep our fingers crossed for good weather. Another important thing is uh, you either need to have completed pruning or you better get to pruning now. Uh, I'm saying you better complete pruning, but I still have to get to the trees here in State College, but we'll get it done this week and next week. You definitely want to get it done uh, in the this week or in the coming uh, few weeks before uh, you start to see bloom. And... Uh, uh, we have I'll, I'll in the next sessions I'll have some recommendations for uh, thinning as well and uh, sorry pruning and then thinning and uh, you want to get uh, get on that as soon as possible. So Sean, uh, really appreciate the update on uh, you know the chill hours and the pruning where we where we should be focused at right now, kind of horticulturally. Um, for folks who might be new or might not know in general. Uh, what is kind of the definition of a chill hour? Like, is there a range that we're looking to be inside of when it comes to uh, like temperature wise, upper and lower range, I guess? Uh, sure, Don. So typically after uh, uh, trees set into dormancy, dormancy uh, when the winter approaches, uh, the chilling hours start uh, calculating from there. So what's a chill hour? Anything, any temperature that's below 45 degrees Celsius up to uh, with a low of about 32 degrees Celsius. So that's when uh, when you have a temperature like that for an hour, that's what you call one chill hour. And then when you have, for example, for Gala, you require 400 to 500 chill hours. So when you've achieved that chill hours, uh, then if you provide the right temperature, they, the, they, can, uh, they can bloom back up. Very good. And you said Fahrenheit, or you said Celsius, yeah. but you meant Fahrenheit, right? Oh, yes, yes. Sorry. Yeah, I meant okay. Yes. I'm still transitioning to... Imperial is a pain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
yeah, no, it's understandable. No, uh, 45, 45C is uh, quite a bit different than... <laughs> <That's true. laughs> Trees would be on fire. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, we got we got big issues, I think, if we're sitting at 45, 45C for a while. Uh, cool. Awesome. Super appreciate that answer. Um, I think folks will, you know, even if they kind of intuitively understand what a chill hour is, or if they've heard it, um, having that range concrete for I, for them, I think is, I think is super helpful. So thank you. Thanks. Dr. Peter, uh, I'll let you kind of take a crack at your update. Okay. Uh, so I just have a brief update. So just to kind of follow on the heels of Sean's uh, mention of pruning right now. Uh, so, you know, my whole thing with plant disease management in the winter is, you know, the best offense is a good defense. And what's a good defense? Sanitation. And, you know, when we're talking about the disease triangle. It's all about breaking that triangle at some point at one of the points. And, you know, one of the points you can break it as is removal of the pathogen. And when we're talking about cankers or dead wood, canker is just a fancy way of saying dead wood for folks out there. Uh, you're getting rid of a source of pathogens. Sometimes the, those cankers or that dead wood is created by fire blight. And so you want to make sure that if you've had a bad fire blight year last year, that you're getting rid of all those, that dead wood in that affected tree. When you do that, you want to make sure that you're pruning, you know, about six to 12 inches from that site of dead wood. And it's, it is easier than you think to identify dead wood or cankered wood. Uh, it's often sunken and wrinkly and it's a darker, it's definitely darker than your um, healthy wood. Um, the challenge, so this is easy for limbs to be able to prune out. The challenge may be is if you have a canker right in the middle of your central leader, what do you do? Well, that's, that is, that is the $64,000 question. What do you do? So you have to make some decisions. Um, if it's a young tree, if it is a tree that's one or two years old, and it's on a susceptible rootstock to fire blight, for example, you may just want to sacrifice that tree, rip the tree out and start over. Um, because it just might be an uphill battle as far as managing disease, particularly fire blight. Uh, but if it's an older tree, you might be able to get away with it. You could probably do some select, try to do some selective pruning, but it might be challenging. So it's it's a judgment call. And I never have a good answer for people because it's all about, it. it uh, you know, ideally, I, you should probably get rid of the tree, but some people can't afford that, you know, for whatever reason. And it's valid. And no matter what. And so it's just, you know, being mindful of of uh, getting rid of that dead wood out of the trees, because not only fire blight sources, but rot sources uh, in the case of um, apples. Uh, we're finding one of the winter fruit meeting talks I have and we'll mention we'll go we'll circle back to the winter fruit schools. Uh, one of my winter fruit school talks this year is about the connection between post harvest rots and basically declining wood or declining trees or cankered wood, you know, because what we're finding out is that a lot of tree cankers can also in the fungus that causes tree cankers can also cause fruit rots as well. Uh, so by getting rid of that dead or cankered or diseased wood, you're also limiting fruit rots. And because in the Mid-Atlantic, what we're finding out is that two-thirds of our fruit rots, if not more, are starting in the field. Where are the, where are the spores coming from? Well, they're probably, they're hanging out in the orchard somewhere. Uh, 
you know, but they aren't being magically, the spores aren't being magically dropped off. Um, they're most likely lurking in the trees somewhere, unbeknownst to you. So do your best to get rid of that damaged or diseased cankered wood. It's all the same thing. Uh, and I always tell people there's no good reason to keep dead wood around. So um, pruning out that, you know, having a clean slate, uh, it is, it will just behoove you in the end. And you may have to walk through your orchard once or twice to be able to catch everything because of the lighting. I get it. I've seen it. I've been there myself. So you may want to have either yourself or your crew just kind of go through again and just make sure, did I catch everything? Did we catch everything to get it out of here? Uh, I just want to do a quick advertisement uh, for the Spanish session that's going to be at the Adams Franklin County meeting on February 19th. That afternoon, there will be a talk in Spanish about canker management. Um, I'm developing the talk and my graduate student, Johanny Castro, whose first language is Spanish because he's from Costa Rica, will be delivering it. And so I thought this, I've given, or I should say, I've given this tangentially before. It's always a good review. So for those in the area who um, may have workers in the field, um, this could be a real good review for them. There will be real life examples that are going to be coming from my orchard. We're going to be hauling trees and branches and et cetera over there so folks can see. So I, I just want to advertise that opportunity for folks if they aren't aware of it. So that'll be at the on February 19th at the Biggerville High School. So it's on President's Day, and this will be the Adams Franklin County Winter Fruit School. Uh, the other thing I just want to mention, speaking of winter cleanup, last year there was, as Sean alluded to, there's a huge crop last year, and a lot of it was left in the orchards for various reasons. And I recently got a question, what do we do about this crop that's still in the orchards? Uh, because really, with this leftover crop, it's going to be a breeding ground for fungi that can cause fruit rots, that can cause probably wood cankers, and etc. So what to do? What to do about this? Well, if you're pruning and there's any fruit hanging off the trees, please do your best to knock it off. That's step one. Um, step two is that you can go through and I would spray urea on the ground like you would if you were doing it in the fall. Remember, you can use urea to break down leaves to help limit apple scab or apple blotch. Well, you could do the same thing for fruit, too, to sort of hasten the decay. Um, you want to aim if you're using feed grade urea, you're aiming for a 5% solution. That's 40 pounds and 100 gallons and spraying 100 gallons per acre. If you can't use urea or you don't have urea, just make sure that your nitrogen source, your nitrogen comes from an ammonium source. So what this will do is that the urea will feed the good microbes, the good microbes will break down the fruit and you won't have fruit rot spores that are ready for action to cause disease this coming year. So just be mindful of that because I'm well aware of basically the inventory that has left over in the field. And then, um, so the I guess the last couple things just to mention, and I'll have Don jump in here. First thing, tree fruit production guide. The 2024-2025 Penn State Tree Fruit Production Guide is available. It is here. If you didn't attend um, the Hershey meeting where we had it, we actually physically had it in hand for sale, you have an opportunity to buy it in a few ways. One, if you're attending the fruit schools, which we will talk about in a minute, 
Uh, they'll be at the fruit schools for sale. Uh, and then you can buy online as well. So there is, um, Don will put the website in the description, uh, the podcast description for today. Um, there's also a digital version too. And if you buy the digital version and the hard copy, there's a discount when you buy the bundle. So just FYI on that. Uh, and then the other thing to mention, just to alert folks and I'm not sure Don might will also reinforce this. So there was a fruit news update, fruit, um, fruit times update that went out today about chlorpyrifos. And I imagine our tree fruit entomologist will be mentioning this during the fruit schools. Chlorpyrifos labels uh, and has been reinstated. You, If you have chlorpyrifos, you can apply it to your trees. Pennsylvania growers can apply it to their tree fruit trees. So um, those borers that you've probably been struggling to control, well, now we have our tool back to control them. Uh, so right now, uh, it just make sure that if you um, haven't read that yet, that you kind of check it out. There's been a lot of information that has gone out there. New Jersey just recently mentioned it in one of their fruit updates uh, or one of, one of their extension updates. And this is just, this is quite recent. Um, so just a heads up about Chlorpyrifos, Lorsban, also known as Lorsban, uh, and I think a, a couple other names, um, but this is basically those, those trunk sprays that you use to be able to control borers. It is available. You are allowed to use it. So Don, I will turn it over to you to wrap things up. Sweet. Uh, I do, I did think of a question. Uh, you mentioned specifically fire blight resistant rootstocks. Yes. Um, I did find an article that Dr. Crassweller uh, wrote last year or updated okay. last year okay. uh, about rootstocks. Uh -huh. um, I imagine it's probably not all of them because... Correct. So is there maybe a resource that folks should look at? Uh, is Would that just be when they talk to their, uh, their nursery about... Yeah, the nursery. And I mean, there's resources online. The Penn State Tree Fruit Production Guide has that information. Uh, if you just if you just search, you know, fire blight resistant rootstocks, information should come up. I think a lot of the Geneva rootstocks and maybe Sean can um, add to this. Uh, I believe the Geneva rootstocks have been specifically one of the key things about the Geneva rootstocks is they are fire blight resistant slash tolerant. Um, to use an example of what's not tolerant, M9. M9 is not, it gets eaten up by fire blight very quickly. Uh, I had potted trees uh, with M9 rootstocks. They got infected in year one and they were dead by year two. In contrast, I had the same cultivar on Geneva 41 that got infected with fire blight and those trees are still surviving. So it, it, the rootstocks do make a difference as far as survivability, particularly when the trees become infected very, very young. And we're talking about at planting or within the first few years of being planted. Um, Bud 9 is, is, is also another fire blight resistant rootstock. And I can attest to that one too, that I've had trees become infected, Bud 9 trees and they still survived. So but M9, it's not. Um, but yes, so our tree for production guide mentions fire blight resistant rootstocks. And there's numerous resources on the web, Adams County Nursery or Boyer's Nursery, or I'm mentioning the Pennsylvania nurseries off the top of my head, but any nursery would have that information as well. But that that re those resources and that information is readily available. 
Cool. I figured good I'd question. touch on that before. Yes, before thank you. On. Um, you know, just because if That's you don't good. Good to know. Good circle back. Yeah, if you right. don't know what's fire blight. Yeah, that is true. That's very, that's an excellent point. Yes. So, all righty. Uh, so, Carrie mentioned that the tree fruit production guides, uh, which have your uh, rootstock resistant <laughs> cultivars in there, yeah. uh, are going to be available at the commercial tree fruit schools. Uh, the winter fruit schools, winter tree fruit schools, however you want to call them. Uh, they're currently available on, like, you can sign up to participate uh, on the Penn State Extension website. Uh, it's under Commercial Tree Fruit School. I will put the link to this in the episode description. Um, but I'm just going to run down a quick list. Uh, so if any of these are your meeting, you can you can look for that one specifically. Uh, or, you know, geographically close to you, you can look for one of those specifically. Um, there's a Sealands Grove meeting uh, February 13th. Uh, my Berks County Leesport meeting is February 14th. Um, I almost skipped one because it's not on the website. Uh, the Adams County slash Franklin County meeting uh, is on President's Day, which is February 19th. Um, there then the next day is a Lancaster County meeting on February 20th. Uh, there's one in the Northeast or, or no, not the, the Northeast. There is one in the Northwest in the town of in Northeast, Erie. Erie which County. I think uh, I think this is two two years for two years that I have stumbled over that one um, on February 27th. Uh, and then there's a Bedford County meeting uh, February 29th. D did you mention Pittsburgh? Pittsburgh's no. on the 28th. Cool. Yeah, sorry. Go. That's in Wexford, I believe. Wexford, um, Pennsylvania, outside of Pittsburgh. That's on February 28th. So that's the Western PA meeting. Very good. That one's not up online yet. So Okay. It will be. <laughs> yeah. It will be. Just keep looking back. Keep, keep an eye out for that one. Then. Yeah. All right. And with that. I'd like to thank Khan again for for coming on and introducing himself. And like I said, hopefully he'll he'll be a, a constant companion for us uh, as he as he does all his work here at Penn State. Um, yeah. So, Gary, thanks, as always, for for all your good updates. And uh, uh, this might be one of the few podcasts we do for a little bit. Uh, I'm going to be taking some leave here, um, but I'll try to see if maybe I can get away for for an hour or two. Uh, and do some podcasting. Um, but if I don't talk to everyone for a bit, um, thank you guys so much. This is one of my favorite parts of my job. Um, I do love doing this. And uh, yeah, say goodbye, everybody. See you later. Bye-bye. Stop recording. There it is. <laughs>